All right, so welcome to Summer in the Psalms. Uh, we begin this week with our 10, I believe it's 10 weeks of sermons out of the Psalms. We kind of take a break in the summer to be able to explore the Psalms a little bit. We've been in a series in Ephesians that the pastor is going to wrap up uh, after the summer is over. Uh, but we'll be going through, through the next 10 weeks and starting today with Psalms. And the first psalm that we're going to be looking at this summer is Psalm 21. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to stand with me as we read God's holy and perfect word. We'll be in Psalm 21. If you are using a pew Bible, that'll be on page 457. If you're not using a pew Bible, I can't help you. You're going to have to find it. So this is God's holy and perfect word. Psalm 21 says this. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is God's holy and perfect word. You may be seated. All right. We're going to move. We're going to move quickly this morning. There's only 13 verses, but I have a tendency to be the long-winded of the preachers here. Uh, So we're going to kind of continue on. My son has a sort of peculiar rebellious streak. It's really not that peculiar. Anyone who's been around children or adults in any capacity has seen the same thing kind of played out. But if if I tell my son that I'm going to do something, whatever that may be, I tell him I'm going to do that, his immediate response is, no. I do that. And then he tries to accomplish whatever task it is that I've said I'm going to do. Uh, and it's, it's cute because he is three years old. <laughs> and it's not rebellious in my mind yet. But we as adults, we haven't lost this nature. We still to, to this day, even the oldest people in this room will tell you that we still struggle with the desire to say, no, I do that. But do we ever treat God's word this way? Do we ever come to God's word and find things? Do we study enough that we are finding things in God's word that make us uncomfortable? Do we ever find ourselves saying, no, God, you, can't, you certainly can't be saying that. I do that. I don't like that you would do that. Or even worse, you might say, you know, I'm going to remain ignorant to that piece of scripture. I'm just not going to read that. I don't like this passage of scripture, so I'm going to take it out of my throat away because I, I don't want to know about that. I'm just blissfully ignorant. Psalm 21 is an opportunity for us to understand more about who God says that he is at a much deeper level than we are normally comfortable to look if we are willing to pay attention to Psalm 21. Now, in the midst of Psalm 21, there is 
beautiful and difficult truth that we must wrestle with. So in Psalm 21 is a psalm, as all scripture is about God, Psalm 21 is about God, but Psalm 21 is really about God. Now you, you may have noticed there are 13 verses in Psalm 21, 13. In these 13 verses, there are 30 references to God, 30. 30 references. This psalm is all about God. It is all about God's power. It is all about God's authority. It is all about how God has an effect on the world. Now, we're going to break this psalm up into three parts because we want to we explore it in depth. We want to see everything that it has. As Jacob did, we want to wrestle with God until he blesses us. So these three parts that we're going to look at are going to be the, the relationship between God and his people, which we see in the first seven verses. We're going to see the relationship between God and his enemies in verses 8 through 12. And lastly, we'll see the, our response, the correct response to this information. So let's look back, and I'll reread verses 1 through 7 for us very quickly so we have it on the top of our mind. It says, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. So this first part of our psalm, as I said, is all about God's blessing on his people. And it's played out across three distinct people groups. You've probably heard of the theological term uh, to and through prophecy. Uh, I would posit that this psalm would be an example of a to and through and through prophecy because there are three groups here that we can kind of see as we're going through this. Now, with this in mind, we have to look first at our first group, right? David, the king of Israel, is writing this psalm first and foremost. So we see aspects of how God interacts with David in this psalm. As we kind of scan through the verses, we see, right, verse 1, talking about how he rejoices in the strength of God and how he is exulting in God's salvation. Surely David, of all people, has the right to be glad for God's salvation and God's strength. David has seen just absolutely just mind-boggling things, fighting lions and bears, fighting giants, going to war. Uh, one of the wives that he has to fight for, he has to go get the foreskins of like 300 guys. Like David's seen things, and God has brought him through those things. Verse 2, right, we see how that he has met him with rich blessings and has set a crown of gold upon his head, obviously low-hanging fruit. David has been richly blessed. David has a literal crown sitting on his head. In verse 3, right, as he talks about how you meet him. Oh, sorry, that was verse 3. Verse 2 is you give him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. David has asked of God. He has sought out God's help in times where he's fought giants and bears, where he's been hiding in caves, where he's done and sought God's will even despite his own desires. And we've seen how he has been blessed richly, how he has a crown upon his head. But then we get to verse Four, and it starts to sort of veer away from David a little bit. You, you may be caught on, as you saw in verse 4, right? It says that he asks life of you and you gave it to him. Uh, certainly David has asked life of God and has been given it to him. And it says length of days forever and ever. Well, we, we all know David is not still alive to this day. He does not have length of days forever and ever physically, right? So it's 
It begins at verse 4 that we start to see this, this next person, this next through, right? And it is because of this next person that we'll see David again in our third group and David's membership in that third group, right? And as we look beyond David, we look to see the Messiah. This psalm looks at how God blesses his Messiah, right? Certainly Christ had the ability to rejoice in the strength of God and to exalt in God's salvation, the one whom God literally raised from the dead. Right? We see how Christ in verse 2 has been given all of his requests because Christ's requests lined up necessarily with the will of God. In verse 3, we see how God has richly blessed Christ. Even in the struggles and in the, the trials that Christ would go through on this earth, he is richly blessed by God and now sits at his right hand on the throne with a crown. And then as we get to verse 4 again, right, we're reminded that Christ now lives forever. Romans reminds us in Romans 6, 9 that because Christ has been raised from the dead, death no longer has dominion over him. He no longer has, death has no right to Christ anymore. And now Christ lives forever because there is nothing to stop him. Death has no dominion there. In verse 5, we see how Christ glorifies his Father, right? His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. God glorifies Christ and Christ glorifies God. And as we continue to verse 6, we see how Christ is blessed forever in heaven. And in verse 7, we're reminded of the steadfast love that, that God and, and Christ have for each other in the Trinity, how they're this operating uh, group of love for one another. But there is yet a third group that we must see in this, these first seven pastors. And I'm going quick. I realize that. Um, I'm going to get into a lot more scripture here in a moment. So I just want to call to attention in your bulletin at the back, I have went ahead and given Diane a list of all the scripture. I think I actually forgot two. I'll let you guys figure out which two I missed. Um, but they are, for the most part, they are all listed in the back. So for those of you who take notes, I've been told by a friend that I occasionally go very quickly with my scripture. And so I want you guys to have access to those. And so I've got them written down for you in the back so you can get back to them as needed. Um, but as we kind of look at this, this last group, right, we look forward to not simply Christ, but those who are alive in Christ. Romans 4.3 reminds us that like Abraham, we must believe God and trust him as that reflects back to Genesis 15.6. We must be Christians. We must be true disciples of Christ. And when we are in Christ, we are offered the same blessings that Christ has through all of this. Right? We see how... Romans 7.4 reminds us that through belief we're united with Christ in his death, that we might belong to another, belong to Christ, so that we might bear fruit for God. So in verse 1, going back, right, we see rejoicing in the strength and exalting in salvation. These are things that we can do because we are in Christ. If we are in Christ, we have the ability to do these things. In verse 2, it says that all of his requests, all of his heart's desires have, been, have not been withheld. And we are reminded in Romans 8.28, right, that all who are called according to God's purposes, God works together things for good. And we're also reminded in 1 John 5.14 how it says that when our requests align with God's will, he hears us. And yet, even as our request must line up with God's will, we are still called to pray. Philippians 4, 5, and 6 reminds us that we must bring our prayers and supplications to God. 
and that we must pray and make those requests to a God who is described in Philippians as at hand, present. In verse 3, right, we're reminded how God blesses us with a crown. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, Paul reminds us that we run the race for a crown, but not a perishable crown like is on the earth that's made of gold or gems, but rather an imperishable crown. In verse 4, we are promised life in Christ to worship and to enjoy God forever. In verse 5, we're, we recognize that while we aren't called to glorify ourselves, God glorifies Christ and we exalt in Christ's glory and we still seek to glorify the Father. And in verse 6, right, your hand, nope, that's 8. In verse 6, you'll make him most blessed forever with the joy of your presence. We are blessed forever because God is at hand, as Philippians has said. And ultimately, one day, we'll stand in his presence worshiping and glorying forever. And lastly, as we come to verse 7, we're reminded that God's love is steadfast and immovable, unyielding, and that it keeps us safe and sound. We're reminded of John 10, 28-30, as Jesus is reminding these Jews that the sheep that his Father has given to him, they're in his hand, that no one can take them out of his hand, that those who his Father has given to him, he also gives to his Father, and no one can take them out of his Father's hand because he is even greater and that he and his father are one. And so it is in all of this that we have a reason to rejoice greatly. We are infinitely blessed in Christ. Now, those seven verses are incredible, and you've probably noticed I'm moving very quickly. (laughs) Um, Those seven verses are incredible. But unfortunately, Psalm 21 does not stop at verse 7. As awesome and as wonderful as the truths of verse 7 are, there is more truth in chapter 21 that we must continue to search through. Now, despite the profoundly awesome nature of these blessings, not a single one of us would choose them. Not a single one. Now, I realize this is a hard, some people are like, did I hear him right? Uh, This is a hard truth. This is a truth that we don't like. Now, a few of us, uh, we've been working through Genesis and Romans in tandem in some of our small groups, and it has been eye-opening as God has unfolded this particular topic to us. And it's, it's just frankly incredible that God would have me preaching out of Psalm 21 after everything that we've been through through Romans and Genesis. And so I want to make a case for why I say that none of us would choose this, because I believe the Bible makes this case. So let me take you through to a couple of passages. First, Romans 3, 10 and 11. If we go back to Romans 3, 10 and 11, it says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. Now, this in itself is condemning, but there is more. Romans three twenty three says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now this is important to us on two levels, right? It tells us that all there's that all-encompassing nature of sin. We are all sinful. But it also reminds us that we do not maintain a level of excellence or glory as God does. And then as we continue on, Romans 6.20 tells us that while we were still slaves to sin, we are now, uh, we, while we were slaves to sin, we were free from righteousness. Free from righteousness. Much like if I go to the store, my son is allergic to peanuts. If I go to the store and if I buy a candy bar that says peanut-free, That only has one meaning to me. 
that that candy bar lacks any peanuts whatsoever. Otherwise, I'm going to sue the living daylights out of that company <laughs> because I love my son and I hate that he's allergic to peanuts, right? We were free prior to our regeneration by God. We were free from righteousness, incapable of it. And this is not a theme exclusive to Romans, right? This isn't just Paul talking about that. I know there's been controversy of late where people are trying to pit Paul and Jesus against each other. Don't do that. This is not a theme that's you know, stuck in Romans. If we go back to Genesis, we see in Genesis 6, 5, it describes humanity with the words that every intention of the thought of the heart of man, every intention of the thought of the heart of man was only evil continually. Now that is a pretty condemning statement about humanity. And some of you, maybe your Bible buffs out there, you you recognize that Genesis 6 is the chapter right before or right at the beginning of the flood. And maybe you think to yourself, well, God wiped all those people out. We don't have to worry about those people anymore. They're gone, but they're not. Right? Romans would be proof enough of this fact. Romans would tell us Paul, living so much longer after the flood, still sees this to be true, but God is gracious and merciful and provides us with yet another piece of evidence in Genesis 8 as he finishes the flood, as he releases Noah from the ark, he makes the statement that the thought and intentions of a man's heart are still evil from their youth. That's Genesis 8:21. if I didn't mention it. The heart of man has not gotten better. There are just fewer of them after the flood, temporarily. Now, if we are to understand that literally no one is or was seeking God, because that's what Romans 3.10 said, 10.11 said, that no one seeks God, no one understands, then we must come to the second part of our psalm, the, the scary part of Psalm 21. If humanity does not desire a God that loves them, if they do not seek him, if they do not understand, then necessarily they must fall into category two, which is outlined in Psalm 21, verses 8 through 12. So let's read that briefly. 8 through 12 says this, Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. This is what God has for his enemies. Are we ever guilty of having a tamer or a friendlier version of God that we worship? Are we content with a God that does not have this kind of wrath? We must never be satisfied with a neutered God. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, or actually the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in his series, The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, for you readers out there, um, he depicts God through the character Aslan the lion. And I think, as ironic as it is, this children's book, for lack of a better term, provides one of the clearest and best examples of God, of any, any that I've read. 
Uh, so let me read an excerpt from you as, as we see the characters, the main characters of this book. They're about to meet Aslan for the first time. And they're now in a, a situation where they're talking with this pair of beavers. Yeah, it's, it's a children's book, right? Uh, they're talking with these pair of sentient beavers who are conversing with them about who Aslan is. So it goes like this. Is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Miss Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Our God is not safe but he is good. Even still, in his goodness, he will not simply lay down and allow his enemies to just walk all over him. Romans 5.10 tells us that prior to being reconciled to God, we were his enemies. There are not three classes of people, enemies, those who haven't decided yet, and those who are Christians. That is a false trichotomy. There are simply two categories of people. There are those who are God's enemies, and there are those who belong to God. There is no other category. If you are not in the second category, you are necessarily in the first category. And as his enemies, anyone in that first category, they deserve everything that is listed in Psalm 21, verses 8 through 12. Let me highlight a couple of them. Right? Verse 9 is especially potent. Let's go there. Right? It talks about you'll make them as a blazing oven when you appear. It's those of you who are in one of our other small groups, they've gone through some of the larger stories of the Bible, and they were in Daniel somewhat recently. And, and Daniel 3 depicts Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, King of the Babylonians, with his fiery furnace, seeking to destroy God's chosen uh, young men. And that fire was not enough to kill the men that belonged to God, but God's fire is enough to kill anyone. 1 Kings 18 if we, if we were to jump back there, it would remind us of what some have termed the God contest, where Elijah stands on top of a mountain alongside the prophets of Baal, each with their own, you know, set-up sacrifice, and, and Elijah even has the, the wherewithal to give them the first shot. No fire came from the prophets of Baal. Elijah went over here, and he, in the midst of a drought, gets out water and continuously, just continually soaks and soaks and soaks his offering until the troughs that they've dug around it are full of water. And when he calls on God, a fire does come from heaven, a fire that annihilates the offering, that annihilates the podium, it annihilates the troughs full of water. If we continue on, right? Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. Many of you probably know that story. God says he's, whoops, that's the wrong page to turn. Let's turn this page. Sodom and Gomorrah, a place is so full of evil that God must judge them. And he retrieves the one righteous man out of them before annihilating it with fire and sulfur. 
Right? As we look at verse 90, right, it says the Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. We're reminded of Numbers 16, where a man by the name of Korah comes to Abraham, at, to Moses and Aaron. Man, I'm really messing up names this morning. Uh, as he comes to Moses and Aaron and says, it is not fair that only Aaron's family gets to be priests. Aren't we all Israelites? Aren't we all holy people? I should have the right to be a priest just like him. Well, he doesn't. God has designed an order, and he has the right to say how things will be. And God does not sit back, even though Moses and Aaron are incredibly frustrated. It is God who takes the action, and God swallows up Korah with the ground. But he doesn't just swallow up Korah. He swallows up his family and his descendants, much like we see here in verse 9, or verse 10, actually. God is not a pushover. He is not looking for loopholes to let you into his presence. That is not who God is. Heaven is not a place that sinners should want to find themselves because there is literally nothing there for them. I used to tell the children's ministry when I would teach these little kids, I know, they were little kids, and this is going to seem really graphic, but they're, you know, kids need to hear this stuff. Right? If a sinner was to somehow manage to weasel their way in and get into God's presence, the only thing that they would see and hear would be their own bodies and their flesh and their bones and their blood just exploding and it just being destroyed as it sought to escape the presence of a holy and perfect and righteous and just God. But all this begs the question, if no one chooses God, and this is what he has for his enemies. Who can be saved? This is the question, is it not? This is the question that I have gripped and have wrestled with as I've read, read through Psalm 21, as I've studied the Bible. Um, it's a, a question that has oftentimes confounded me. Not, I mean, I'm a preacher, so I mean, I still know what I'm talking about, but... Uh, and I think the biggest reason that I've wrestled with this is because, honestly, in, in 2021, we have made liberty and freedom into idols. We have made them into idols. Men and women have fought and died for our country to bring us those things, and we have turned around and made them into gods that we worship. In a world populated with sinners who care not for him or his holiness, a people so totally depraved that every intention of the thoughts of their heart are only evil continually, that are not at all righteous, not even one of them, that do not understand and above all do not seek God. In this world, God elected to save some. Now I want to provide clarification on this. Because there's a popular opinion that there's, you know, only a couple of verses that would touch on this topic, and that's not the case. Um, I have included with and below those lists of verses in your bulletin, that list of verses, the second group of verses, the supplemental ones. Uh, these are ones that I have used as I've been preparing this sermon. These are the, this is a small sampling of the verses that discuss this topic. I do want to look at a few specific ones. These ones will be in the first list because they're in the sermon. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, Paul reminds us that God says that he chose in him, 
He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I won't go too much into that one because on February 21st, 2021, Matt, our lead pastor, preached a sermon called Blessed with Every Spiritual Blessing. I highly recommend if you weren't here. Many of you guys were here for that, so you all know what I'm talking about. But if you weren't here, I recommend going on Facebook or on our website and finding that because he does an excellent job of exegeting that specific passage. He, it's so much better than I could do that I, I won't even attempt it. I've got many other things to talk about, and I'm already way in. So, John 6:37, another example. Jesus says that all who the Father gives him will come to him. And then later in verse 44, John 6, 44, Jesus says that no one can come to him unless the Father draws them. Later in John 10, verses 24 to 26, right, the Jews are demanding, they come to Jesus and they say, if you're really the Messiah, just tell us already. And Jesus looks at them and says, you don't believe. I've done all these works and you don't believe. But then he makes this key statement. He says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. In John 17, 24, as Christ in his high priestly prayer is praying, he's just finished praying for his disciples and now he's praying for all future Christians, he thanks the Father for each one that the Father has given to him. And then lastly, right, if we get to continue on to Acts, Acts 13, 48, we see that Paul and Barnabas, as they're out there traveling, they've been trying their, their darndest to proclaim the gospel to the Jews. And time after time after time, they are run out of synagogues because the Jews just don't want to hear it. And so Paul and Barnabas go and begin to preach to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are hearing the good news and they're coming to salvation. And the Jews get upset with this and Paul and Barnabas looking like, well, if you don't count yourself worthy to come to eternal life, then we will go out and we will find those who are willing, the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, upon hearing this, begin to praise and to glorify God. And it says at the end of that verse, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now at this point in our psalm, coming back to Psalm 21, right? David is looking across the battlefield of life. And he has seen both groups. He has seen those that God loves, and he has seen those who are God's enemies. And he must respond to this. And what is his response? We see it in verse 13. It says this, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. David's response is praise. Our response should be praise as well. This is God's plan of salvation. Not to sit on his bed and cry and wait and beg for sinners to come to him, but like a shepherd, as we see in the parable in Luke 15, he goes out and he finds his lost sheep. And this is good news. I recognize that it is hard, but this is the best news we could possibly hope for. Because not only does it mean that if you are here wondering if God will take you in, it means he will because if, if, you are, if you hear God calling, then he has called you. But not only that, but it also is good news for those of us who belong to God already. Because if you belong to God already, he has not only chosen to provide you with eternal life, but he has also called you to proclaim the gospel. The same gospel that he promised he would use to call sinners to himself through you. 
through his people. We cannot argue someone into becoming a Christian, and that was never our job. God changes hearts and minds. We are called to make disciples by proclaiming the word. And this, this is the best news because we don't have to work, go out into the world wondering if we're going to say the wrong thing because it doesn't matter. As long as we are proclaiming God's word, God will do the hard work. Our job is to proclaim the word. Romans 10, 14 through 17 reminds us of this. I'll read it to you. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God calls sinners to repentance through faith. By the proclamation of the word, through feeble and worthless people like me and like you. Because that first description in Genesis, right? Every intention of the thought, the heart of man, that still applies to us. I am still as desperately sick with sin as anyone else. And yet somehow I have the ability to be able to proclaim the gospel. You each have the ability to proclaim the gospel. It is your right as followers of Christ to proclaim his word. It's because of that good news that we can carry the good news and say with certainty that if you come to Christ, you are free indeed. To, if we go out and we find a woman who has an abortion in her past, who wrestles with grief and pain that comes with abortion, that comes with the choices that she had to make, and if she looks at God and says, man, certainly I am not worthy. I, look what I have done then we can remind her that God, looking across the myriad of sinners, has looked out and said, I want that one. The man who's tormented by addiction, endlessly seeking freedom over and over from other means, he can rejoice in the freedom that is in Christ because God looked across the sea of broken people and said, I want that one. To the teenager who wrestles with depression and anxiety from a world that constantly shifts, they can rest knowing that God does not shift or change. And when he chose them, he was certain they were the one he wanted. Now, I want to address two groups of people that are here today. There are those who belong to God and those who do not. They are the only two groups, as I said. To group one, if you belong to God, you are secure. It is this doctrine, this understanding that reminds us that we can be secure. Because Numbers 23.19 says that God is not like a man, that he should shift or change his mind. John 10.27-30, remember that, the passage I mentioned earlier about how God said no one can take them out of my hand? Those who are given to God, they are secure. Your salvation is secure. You don't have to wonder or worry if down the road your faith won't be enough because you are secure in the hand of Christ. Do not allow this, this tough truth to make you like my son who says, no, I do that. To group two, to those of you who don't belong to God, 
It's not an accident that you're here. It's not an accident that you've heard about him. If you hear God calling, look what he has to offer. Come to him. He loves you deeply. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. And he is confident that he wants you. In just a moment, the worship crew is going to come back up here and we're going to sing a last song. Don't let today be the day that you walk out that door and not know where you're headed. Because I can tell you, if you don't know where you're headed, there's really only two options. And if you don't think you're in option number two, you're in option number one. And I can't promise you that when you walk out there that you'll make it home. You need God. And God is calling you today. This is his word. Psalm 21 is his word. He is calling you today. Come to him and he will give you rest.